You always hear that when it comes to the Civil War, Kentucky was a more neutral state. And as a whole, Kentucky was conflicted when it came to slavery. There are tales of brothers from the same family fighting on opposite sides, one brother for the Union, the other brother for the Confederacy, and it tore the family apart. Or how neighbors on the same street in like Frankfort, Kentucky, who always got along, were now enemies because they supported opposite sides of the war. This idea that Kentucky was neither truly North or truly South makes sense to the modern day Kentuckian. I mean, Kentucky today isn't truly Southern or truly Northern, not in our customs, our culture, or even our geography. We're somewhere in the middle. So this idea that we were a neutral state during the Civil War is an easy narrative to accept. But make no mistake, for decades before the Civil War, Lexington was the epicenter of slave trade in Kentucky. Located in the heart of the Bluegrass region, one of the most heavily enslaved portions of the state, Lexington's Cheapside Slave Auction Block served both local and regional markets. The African Americans who were offered for auction faced frightening uncertainty. They were virtually powerless to influence whether their sale took them across the country, to the other end of the state, or down the river to the cotton-producing states farther south. Andrew Patrick of Explore Kentucky History writes that slave auctions were often cataclysmic events for the men, women, and children who were sold. Sales could shatter families and rip an individual away from the lives and communities they knew. No enslaved person was immune from the possibility of sale, and the auction block at Cheapside was the spot where this fear became a reality for thousands of Kentuckians. If you've ever visited Lexington or you live in Lexington, then you most likely know the area once commonly called Cheapside. It's the site of the old Lexington courthouse. It's the heart of downtown. And it's now known as Tandy Park and the Fifth Third Pavilion. On the site where the enslaved were once bought and sold now hosts events like Thursday Night Live and weekend farmers markets. For over a hundred years, though, it was also the site where two Confederate statues stood, the statues of Confederate General John Hunt Morgan and Confederate Secretary of War John C. Breckinridge. Both were prominently displayed in the lawns of the courthouse. And if you're into symbolism, which, I mean, come on, that's exactly what statues are, right? They're symbols of bigger ideas or bigger movements. Then think about the fact that after the South lost the Civil War, the Confederacy lost, that Lexingtonians, with the help of other local organizations, raised hundreds of thousands of dollars to erect two huge Confederate statues on the site of one of the most prominent slave auction sites in this region of the United States. Not Union soldiers, Confederate soldiers, on the grounds of a former slave auction block. Which really raises the question as to just how neutral Kentucky was or maybe how neutral Lexington was. But history is not stagnant. It is alive, it is dynamic, and it's ever-evolving. And it is in this spirit of remembrance and education, reconciliation, and redemption that a local organization emerged called Take Back Cheapside. Founded by two visionaries and local activists, Russell Allen and DeBron Thomas, Take Back Cheapside is more than an organization. It is a catalyst for change, it's a beacon of hope, and it's a testament to the power of community activism. 
Over the course of two tireless years, from 2015 to 2017, Take Back Cheapside worked to rewrite the narrative of Cheapside. And their mission was clear, to reclaim the sacred space from the shadows of Confederate symbolism and restore its dignity as a place of unity, healing, and inclusive commemoration, where all should feel welcome. Through grassroots mobilization and public engagement, Take Back Cheapside achieved what many deemed would be impossible, the removal of those two Confederate statues that stood as painful reminders of oppression and injustice. Back in 2021, the Lexington podcast, we, we were fortunate to sit down with Russell Allen and DeBron Thomas and have the privilege of hearing firsthand the remarkable story behind Take Back Cheapside. In this two-part episode series, join us as Russell and DeBron explain the triumphs, the challenges, and enduring legacy of this extraordinary movement. Together, let us celebrate the power of community, the strength of solidarity, and the transformative impact of local grassroots activism. Also, it should be noted, this was the pioneering days of COVID-era Zoom call interviews, which is the reason why the audio is... You know, not the greatest, but the content definitely is. Don't go anywhere. Hi, we're the Lexington Podcast. We are all things Lexington, Kentucky. History, true crime, current events, and local recommendations. Glad you're here, y'all. So I guess in 2015, DeBron and I came together through music. He is a musician. Um, and at the time I was uh, rapping and we were working on a project together. And uh, DeBron, being the history buff he is, uh, kind of was uh, rattling off these facts about Cheapside and our downtown square and the fact that it was a slave auction block and, and talking about the Confederate monuments down there. Um, there had been previous conversations, I believe, a few years prior to that um, by poet uh, Bianca Spriggs about that space. And DeBron was just real activated around the history and kind of got together talking one day about what we could do about it um, and how we could support that area. And it started with a few small kind of, you know, gatherings at the space and and it kind of blossomed from there. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's been interesting to reflect on this recently because at least for me, this entire thing goes back a decade and maybe longer. Because um, I first moved to Lexington in 2008 and when I went home for Christmas that year was when Oscar Grant was uh, was murdered. And that was, for me, the first, like, unarmed Black person that was unjustly killed that really stuck out. Obviously, there are many throughout history. Um, you know, De Emmett Till, definitely. Um, but, I, you know, I remember that was something that really, really stuck with me. And then fast forward to 2012, uh, Trayvon Martin was killed. And in Lexington, uh, Bianca Spriggs had hosted some community conversations at the Carnegie Center. Um, and in that conversation, you know, in at that event, you know, there were a lot of people that were talking about kind of how to, you know, move forward as a community. You know, Tony Sullivan was mentioned. Um, 
And of course, you know, anytime you talk about somebody else's problems or, you know, you can't really go on that conversation without at least looking within yourself. So the conversation around monuments came up, specifically the history and the misinformation of the history at Cheapside. And, um, you know, I, that was kind of what really started to get me activated into in, into that. Uh, and then fast forward to 2013, uh, you know, Dylan Roof kills uh, nine people in a church. And here we are having yet again, another community conversation, similar, similar things, same con- you know, conversation to Carnegie Center. You know, again, that was like the first time I was ever in a space with like actual open white supremacists and not just systemic white supremacists. Uh, and, um, it was actually really fascinating, uh, because I just remember that particular feeling and being like, oh, people are actually here and are really like upset with, you know, that Dylan Roof is for whatever reason being, uh, accosted as a villain, which I mean, you know, I think it's just, but anyway, so that's kind of where, uh, where things got started for me in the community. And then, you know, as Russ mentioned, um, we met in 2015 working around music, and, you know, in 2015 uh, also was the conversation around uh, the statues as far as the city level goes. So after the after the Dylan Roof shooting, someone had spray painted Black Lives Matter on the John Hunt Morgan statue. And about a month after that, someone had intentionally knocked over the uh, historic plaque uh, at Cheapside that mentions of the space as a slave market. Uh, and so part of the kind of solution for that was uh, Mayor Gray had passed that on to the uh, Urban County Arts Review Board uh, to discuss and decide and make recommendations for what should happen. So there were two meetings that happened around this that I was a part of. The first was a, uh, a conversation at the Carnegie Center. Again, there were a lot of white supremacists there, a lot of people there, uh, and it was actually a relatively diverse crowd. And then there was another meeting that was held on like a Wednesday at like three o'clock in the afternoon in City Hall. Uh, And I was the youngest person in the room at the time, and I was 26. So that kind of, and I was, I think I was maybe one of two Black people in that space at the time. Um, But anyway, it's a completely different situation. Uh, But ultimately, the Urban County Arts Review Board recommended the removal of the the monuments and the return of the uh, historical marker. So that was kind of those two of those things were where we got two of the the, the pillars of the, the movement, which those two followed by the third opening that space to be a more com- inclusive environment. But You know, at that point, so kind of fast forward to 2016, uh, Russ and I were actually at his CD release show, and it was the week that Alton Sterling and Philando Castile were murdered. And we had had several conversations over the, you know, leading the weeks leading up to this about um, what we could do with all of this anger and frustration. And um, it was at that point that uh, Take Back Sheepside was officially created. Awesome. So then... What happened next? So you, the, the idea is born and then where did it go? Um, well, I wanted to put together a, a little bit of a flash mob uh, actually at Cheapside. And we had some friends who were in the activist community here in Lexington. And, you know, they were basically like, you make the event, I'll invite the people. 
um, you know, and we'll get as many people down there. And uh, that was kind of the first real action that we had. And then we kind of followed that up with um, another action at Thursday Night Live, which was uh, quite interesting. But my whole uh, process for wanting to organize around this is kind of takes inspiration from Fred Hampton and the way that he organized the Rainbow Coalition. You know, there are already several groups in Lexington that were organizing in various different ways. So what we did was we, you know, kind of created Take Back Cheapside with the, you know, kind of idea that we were going to have some partnerships with organizations that were already exist in existence so that we could uh, disseminate our messaging and um, everything would kind of go through kind of coming out the, the, the same way. And at that point, we had started doing some trainings and I met with several historians in town uh, to get as much information about the history of Cheapside because part of the whole conversation is, you know, that people would say that, oh, well, Cheapside is where cheap slaves are sold and this and that. And that is not true at all. And the history of like Lexington street names and stuff is actually like incredibly mundane. So Short Street was called is called Short Street because it is the shortest street in that area. Mill Street is called Mill Street because there used to be a mill at the end of it. And Upper is called Upper because it used to go upstream. So like all of these things that, you know, the people would say to kind of I don't know, take away from the atrocities that happened at Chiefside were mainly just distractions. And so that was part of uh, kind of our conversation in trying to educate people with the correct information while also, you know, ultimately asking for uh, the conversation about this. And I guess the last part I should I should mention is going back to the, the first question in February of 2016. So Mayor Gray was running for Senate. So after he had asked the Urban County Arch Review Board uh, to make recommendations, he didn't really say anything about this for a couple months, because I think they came out with the uh, recommendations in November, and he didn't say anything until February uh, of 2016. And in February of 2016, he said that the statues were going to stay and there was going to be added historical context. And that was partially because of the influx of phone calls they were getting uh, to support the, the, you know, the statue staying where they were. Uh, so that was kind of where, you know, our work kind of came in, in terms of ba- counterbalancing that out a little bit. There's, I, there's a huge misconception that cheap side, the name comes from a cheap place to buy enslaved people. And so that's not accurate. No. So I was just going to say, I kind of wanted to touch on the point of when we're talking about cheap side and we're talking about the movement, we're talking about it being a slave auction block in general, our kind of thought process on it was it doesn't matter necessarily what price an enslaved person was sold for enslaved people were sold the people were sold into slavery in that spot so in kind of dispelling the narrative like you said of that not being true we wanted to kind of draw the comparison that it doesn't matter if it was it was the most expensive person ever sold it, it was a person sold so that's kind of was what we used to refute that kind of misinformation and the name of the market comes from a market in london that is also called cheapside and in old english it literally just translates to marketplace like chap is to sell and side is place so it literally or a market and so it literally means you know, marketplace. And, and that is where the, the name came from. And also, there are a lot of things about that space that are, you know, that haven't necessarily been changed since then. Uh, it had always been a place of commerce. 
pretty much since the city was was kind of created. Uh, but there are also still tunnels underneath uh, that lead out to the East End, which is where a lot of the slave jails were. They're, you know, obviously cut off now, but um, they are still they are still there. The tunnels? Mm-hmm. You could, I know that you could access them from a couple of the buildings that are still down there. I know that the, I can't even remember what the name of it is. Is it still the Ruddy Duck or it's the Horse and Jockey? That's what it yeah. is. The, the, the place that used to be Cheapside, the bar, um, you could actually go down into the basement and, um, you know, you could get to a certain point of access, but you couldn't really go much farther, but you could see that they were there. And, and what, were, what were the purpose of the tunnels? Transportation of boats and other commerce later on, but mostly boats. Yeah, because because um, short was it uh, Vine Street is where the town branch was, so it wasn't always a road. Um, so they had to have they had to find ways to be able to transport things without one bringing them through the market and two kind of safely getting them to another side of town. Wow, that is fascinating. So in, uh, like LeBron said, in February 2016 is kind of, we were doing work around educational things, like we're talking about dispelling the rumors uh, of what that space meant, talking about that space. We were actually researching and trying to find bills of sale of slaves at that time. So just trying to educate and bring recognition to that area so that folks would come to some kind of decision. And then we thought that decision was inadequate. Um, as far as adding more context to Confederate monuments, which were literally erected during a time of Reconstruction in which Black folks across America were getting a foothold within the society and starting to make financial, political, social gains. Um, and it was Confederate monuments are done in, in direct opposition to that. So um, once that kind of came out, we decided that we needed to have meetings with them to kind of inform them of what we had as far as information on how the statues of John um, Hunt Morgan and John C. Breckenridge came to, to be in that particular space, um, as well as advocating for their removal. Um, and that's kind of when we came in and we had a series of meetings with Mayor Gray about that, in which I can confidently say that I think our the information that we had was able to move his position from that of the context um, to trying to figure out a a way to get those out of there. Um, so we worked on that particular position and this meeting, working in the community until uh, around the time of Charlottesville in 2017. Kind of our movement kind of is folded in, for lack of a better term, with that basically. Um, on that Saturday, I'll never forget. I was uh, I just stopped at a gas station real quick to get some something to drink before a UK basketball game, and was watching the, all the coverage that was going on. Um, and of course, saw the that that moment in which uh, Heather Heyer uh, was hit by the the car. And immediately after that, our mayor decided to announce that he would be uh, recommending the statues be moved, and that kind of kicked in an entire process um, for us as far as what we needed to do to get those removed. It did involve a, a city council vote um, that had to happen. That uh, particular vote happened, I want to say in August. And then at, throughout our process, we did think that we would have to speak with the Military Heritage Commission, um, who was supposed to have a jurisdiction over those statues. Um, but one of kind of the linchpins towards the end of the campaign that actually helped us to get those statues taken down. Um, and they were they were actually taken down on October 17th, uh, uh, 2000. 
2017. But the last linchpin in that was a decision by the Attorney General, Andy Fear, that the way in which those statutes were folded into the military commission was invalid. So therefore, like our city could make a decision independent of that. Um, and that was kind of like the last last piece. So from that moment, literally, uh, it was to get those statues done. But one of the big things that stuck, and I wanted to touch on that with the Charlottesville thing, is that time of the movement was kind of the, the wildest time, I guess. If that's how you could explain, because some of the folks that were in Charlottesville were actually a part of our community, and they were down there fighting um, and supporting those activists and they actually were able to witness that and then those folks came back here and also some of the nazis and and white supremacists that were in charlottesville coming off of what they perceived as a victory decided to come to another place who had just said that they would remove their statues and look for another victory um but i will commend our community for the way that it banded together to protect um our movement to protect the goals to protect the city from literally a siege and and were able to kind of present a type of front that let them know that it wasn't a place that was, I guess, right for that type of uh, of situation. So I will commend our city for that. A lot of people stepped up on that. So. What, what exactly set the tone for that? What did the city do that ensured that there wasn't another Charlottesville? I would commend all of the people that kept us protected from day one, the same people who taught us how to power map, how to, you know, go about various ways of organizing, you know, again, all of like the, it's like the, the relationships that we created at the beginning of trying to reach out to these groups that had already existed kind of formed into the separate group that was called Lex Resist. And they became effectively, you know, our medics, our street team, our security, uh, some of were some some of which are uh, our temporary housing. You know, people who drove us around. You know, I I will say that even though I am a um, very you know I'm a very big fan of uh, the Black Panther Party and you know what they were able to accomplish, I am not necessarily the biggest fan of guns. So it's not something that I've really ever uh, dabbled in. But having people who were understanding of that, you know, was it was really important. And I, I think also, <laughs> I never will forget this. Actually, I remember the day that we went to uh, meet with the mayor, I had been riding around with a friend of mine and we picked up some other people and we all went to the, uh, the, the mayor's office and I had like my phone in a Faraday bag and you know, I was doing everything I could to not be obvious that it was me. And we get inside and I, I sit down I take my jacket off and we have a conversation. And I said something to the chief about death threats. And, you know, his reaction was the same way you would be if someone were to tell you something that you already knew. Right. And they were like, well, do you want, you know, do you want you know, us to park a car, you know, car outside your, and I'm like, nope, we, we've got this, we've got this taken care of. Like you just do what you have to do on the city's end to make sure that we don't have an escalation. 
And ironically enough, I guess I, I guess it's been enough time to say this. Being quoted in the in a newspaper article with the same person who was trying to kill you is pretty weird. But also, it was. <laughs> I, I think that my I think that my favorite my favorite quote that I have ever said that immediately made me face palm, which just having a casual conversation with a reporter, I said, "We're not asking people to come down and punch Nazis," uh, and that got printed in the newspaper. But yeah, I, I think I think that. Uh, you know, I, I think that that point in time, people really understood that this was not a game. This was not, you know, because part of it as well is there you already had people who were activated and wanted to go down and just start trouble for no reason. They're like, look, like we they're lit- it's one literal situation. If if you don't start none, there won't be none. And I think that was the the kind of the best way to go about it. Um, and I, the last thing I did want to say about the uh, Kentucky Military Heritage Commission, because I realized as often as we talked about this to other people, I kind of leave that part out because it really is one of those things that's like, I'm so grateful for Governor Bashir, who was attorney general at the time, uh, because that decision was made swiftly uh, and kind of without much of a of an explanation, you know, much of a, of a notice. But part of the reason why he was able to make that decision was when Teresa Isaac was mayor uh, and put the statues under the protection of the Kentucky Military Heritage Commission, she didn't go through council for approval. So that was so effectively, it was like she just kind of did it on her own. And so that was kind of what made that null and void. Gosh, so where are the statues now? They are in the Lexington Cemetery. Gotcha. So, and I did want to, I did want to just kind of oh, yeah, touch on and because make a connection about during that time when like folks were lives were in danger, like he said, uh, protection folks were at my home for a good two or three weeks while actual Nazis like circled the block to see what was going on. So like that happened, and I think a lot of the conversations we have now when we're talking about defund the police, and people are saying how bad a slogan that is, and how scary it would be to not have that police protection um not only did not only were we able to create a community that was able to respond um and provide protection but actually i could see a situation in which police presence would make it worse um and it was really a situation of the community keeping the community safe um so there's so many lessons learned out of that and there's so many ways in which people can come to the aid of another person that we were able to, I think, model and looking back now uh, within the movement that could be used now. So just that's just one thing that I just want to say that we have kept us safe throughout the um, entire. Yeah, will you go into that more? What do you mean? So the com- you had community members that were looking after each other, not needing yeah. the police because the police would have made it worse by. Yeah. So like like DeBron was saying, kind of the, the group that off shot from um, the initial coalition building that became the medics, um, that became the security, just through building that, that community, through talking about this issue with folks, through activating people who worked on this issue, we created, a, like he said, not only a coalition, but, but a community of, of people willing to answer these basic calls. Does this person need, like he said, he had a Faraday bag. Someone was able to to put together the money for that. That's outside of our normal system. People providing protection on my home who just look like regular folks who were not uh, a large police car to say, hey, this is exactly where it is in case you didn't know. Just, you know, just things where it, where folks came together to to 
kind of provide that fabric. And I think a lot of times when police get involved, it becomes a heightened situation. And I think a lot of those people's first thing was we would like to avoid a situation at all possible times. And they, and, and when you work with your community, you think ahead on that. We were talking about what to do to be safe, um, what to do to, to minimize harm weeks before that. And then days before that and then hours before each decision and then throughout the decision. So I think just having that kind of bond with the folks throughout the organizing is what makes you make the correct decision. And it also gives you like an honesty and an open like mode of communication to where we can have conversations when we don't think we're being the most safe and folks can hear that and and adjust. Don't think that our current systems are built that way. And I do want to just say for the record, that I'm so appreciative of Chief Barnard because there are many people who would have been in, in his position who could have easily downplayed the situation, could have not been as open with uh, transparent conversations. I mean, like I had conversations with him almost like at least at least twice a week through 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 all of that. And, you know, I think, again, it really goes back to that community thing. I mean, yes. You know, obviously, like there are there are problems within the way the institution of policing. But when you bring it back to, as Russell mentioned, that point of community and really looking at it from a standpoint of community as in everybody has to bring their strengths to the situation. And I I use this analogy a lot. I, I kind of think about it as a, in a standpoint of like Voltron. You know, Voltron was this cartoon robot that was pieced together by five different smaller robots. And it didn't matter which piece was or was not there. If you didn't have all of the pieces, you don't have Voltron and you're not able to have the legendary defender of the universe. And it's the same, you know, the same thing is true where, you know, certain people who may be gifted in certain ways, because I think that there is a misconception that like, oh, well, all you got to do is show up to the protest. Well, there aren't people who can show up to the protest. But there are people who can give money for shirts. There are people who can write a letter to the city council. There are people uh, who can pick somebody up and drive them to a protest and then go on, you know, like people have different ways to be able to show up to this. Um, and so, you know, again, I really just appreciate that Chief Barnard actually took the situation seriously and did what I would like to say his very best, you know, to make sure that nothing, you know, that we didn't have any situation like Charlottesville here in Lexington. You know, that's one of those things that took a lot of different people to make happen. You know, it's also part of the story that doesn't get told, doesn't get told very often. So the statues come down and then what, what are, what are, what are now the goals? And the, the statues was just like a part of, a part of the grand scheme of things anyway, Because right? the original goal was that it was education. It was to make sure that people were aware of the space and what it was and how that has lasting influences in the community. And then the statues was kind of a part of that. So now, now what's, what, where is um, taking that cheap side headed and what, what should we as Lexingtonians be doing to support the movement? So, so DeBron spoke about it earlier, but I don't think we, we extrapolated on it and then he can come back in and add some more flavor to it. But uh, we initially had a three point plan. The first is to put the plaque historical plaque to talk about the space back um, into the space. And he talked about how that was knocked over um, during kind of like a tit for tat uh, situation. 
Uh, the second was, of course, to have the statues removed from the space. And the third was to open the dialogue on how to make the space more inclusive for all Lexingtonians. And that's where we are right now. And that kind of third point we've always talked about is just like a, a point that never really achieve. You can only aspire to. So like we're always going to be working on that third point. But some of the work that we have done on the third point um, is during kind of the pandemic, once again, kind of sparked around the killings of uh, Black people, George Floyd, um, and unfortunately right up the road in, in Louisville, Breonna Taylor. A movement kind of came up in Lexington as well. Um, as in a lot of places, they did a lot of marching uh, and a lot of uh, separate movements that were sparked around this. And one of the things that we've been working on behind the scenes uh, was trying to get a name change and kind of a redesign of that space. And that's something that kind of we were able to work on there during that time. And it's, of course, a point that's not done. And there's more work that we are doing on that. But now that we've talked about the history of the name of Cheapside and dispelling some of the rumors, we still wanted to give that space uh, a new energy and a new feel and, and something that actually was of Lexington. Um, so we have worked with the city and gotten the name changed to Henry A. Tandy, Centennial Park. And Henry A. Tandy is a famous Black Lexingtonian. Um, and that's kind of part of the work that we've been doing. And I will actually pass it to uh, DeBron so he can kind of fill you in and, and kind of talk about like his, his life and his history and how he ties into the space specifically. I do want to step back just 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 a bit. So, you know, we talked about the history of Cheapside. And, you know, fast forward to, you know, the statues themselves, the, the John C. Breckenridge Monument was, well, was crowdsourced. Uh, the erection for it uh, was created in 1883 by some people in Lexington. Uh, it was completed in 1885 and actually uh, up until a few years ago actually had its own bank account, which is wild. Uh, the John Hunt Morgan statue uh, was uh, money was raised for that by the Daughters of the Confederacy in 1911. Uh, the state of Kentucky actually had to pay $10,000 for the rest of the completion of that statue, which, you know, $10,000 in 1911 is a whole lot more than it is now. And so part of this entire process ties back into Henry Tandy. Going back to Again, like it's it is it is very wild to me. So I just real real quick sidebar. So I'm from a city uh, in California called Menlo Park, and in Menlo Park there's a area called Sharon Heights, and it was named after a famous California assemblyman whose son was actually married to uh, the ex-wife of John. Owen Breckenridge, who was the son of John C. Breckenridge. So I apparently can't, can't get away from them. But again, going, everything go, you know, ties back to Henry Tandy. Henry Tandy did the brickwork on the Carnegie Center. Again, this is where we, this is where this whole conversation started back in 2012. And when we talk about Cheapside as a space, one of the biggest centerpieces of it is the old courthouse. And part of the conversation around these you know, around the space ties back into everything. So the, because when we thought that the statues were under the protection of the Kentucky military heritage uh, commission, 
you know, we were going to have to have their permission to move the statues, even though the John C. Breckenridge statue got moved in 2010, a couple feet with no problem. That, that was a fun, that was a fun moment um, in, in, in the meeting when we met with the mayor that day, because uh, they were not ready for that. But as we kind of move into, uh, into, you know, getting out of that umbrella, there were tax credits applied to the restoration of the courthouse. And within the tax credits, there was a stipulation that says that after five, once the, the completion of the courthouse is finished, the nothing can move for five years. So that's part of the reason why it was so imperative that we got the statues out before the completion of the courthouse, because otherwise we would have had to wait five years. So how Mr. Tandy you know, fits into all of this, uh, Mr. Tandy and a gentleman by the name of Alfred Bird had a... Uh, had a, a basin company called uh, Tandy and Bird, and they did the brickwork on the courthouse. And most of what you see on the outside, most of what you see on the inside, uh, in terms of the ceiling as well, uh, or, or bricks that were laid by Tandy. And part of his legacy, again, tying back into everything, in the East End, there's an area called Kincaid Town. Uh, there was a gentleman by the name of George Kincaid who owned a house, uh, which is where the Living Arts and Sciences Center is. Tandy built homes in that area and let Black folks live there for free. He wanted to provide a space for Black people to feel safe, welcomed, and appreciated. And so our work is complete, is, you know, is explicitly tied to his legacy because we wouldn't have been able to do what we had done had it not been for his work already, plus everything surrounding the courthouse you know, that doesn't happen without him. So that's kind of how the conversation of the name change happened. You know, we tried, I, I had, I had several, I had several conversations with a local historian about finding some women to name the space after and finding other people to name the space after, but everything came back to Henry Tandy. Um, and in addition to that, his son, Vertner Woodson Tandy, is uh, one of the founding members of the Alpha Phi Alpha fraternity, and he was uh, the first licensed Black architect in the state of New York. Um, he built many buildings there and also built Madam C.J. Walker's house. So again, like this legacy goes way beyond what you can kind of imagine. In addition, his partner, uh, George Washington Foster, is Chuck D's great-grandfather. So that's also a cool little tidbit. But I mean, again, like everything that we do, you know, it all goes back to Mr. Tandy. And that was part of the reason why we felt that his name was the name that should be on that space. The Lexington Podcast is written, edited, and produced by Erica Fries and Jonathan O'Hare in association with Freeze Media. If you'd like to get a hold of us, feel free to DM us on Instagram. We are Lexington Podcast on Instagram, or feel free to email us at lexingtonpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks to our sources this week, which include a huge shout out to Russell Allen and DeBron Thomas of the Take Back Cheapside Movement, which now has a documentary that you should definitely check out. You can find them on Facebook for more details. Also, thanks to information from the Explore Kentucky History article written by Andrew Patrick entitled Cheapside Slave Auction Block, found at explorekyhistory.ky.gov. See you next week.